Because we live in a fallen world, one thing is certain. Every one of us will experience some level of trouble during our lives. The question isn't whether trouble will come. The question is, when will it come? Job was a man who knew something of good times and bad times. And he said, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, man is born to trouble as the sparks fly upward. So what Job says is, hey, as sure as the sparks that come from burning logs rise with the heat, trouble is sure to come our way someday. Now, last week, the psalmist, we learned, demonstrated wisdom by acknowledging and accepting the fact that trouble was headed his way. We may acknowledge the fact that trouble is headed our way, but I'm not so sure that we're very accepting of that fact. But he acknowledged it and he accepted it, and we know that he accepted it because the preparations that he took. Uh, After the service last week, Chris made an interesting point to me by pointing out that Paul wants us to mimic the psalmist when he instructs us to put on the whole armor of God. And Chris wondered out loud if perhaps Paul had the words of the psalmist in mind as he wrote the book of Ephesians. It very well could have been. It's certainly something to think about, isn't it? And why do we put on the whole armor of God? Well, we do that in order to prepare ourselves for the battles of life, battles that we know are going to come. We may not know the exact day and time of their arrival, but we know that they are coming, and therefore it is an act of wisdom as we prepare ourselves each day by putting on the armor of God. Now, I said last week that the theme or the big idea of this passage is the cry of a troubled heart or the prayer of a troubled heart. And last week we got just into the very first verse, And the point there that we brought out was uh, we looked at how he prayed, how he prayed. Let me briefly review how he prayed just so we can be reminded of again. We learned that he prayed with his whole heart. We learned that he prayed with a sense of urgency. We learned that he prayed with purpose, that he prayed confidently, and he prayed with expectancy. And I trust that this week that you've had some time to meditate on those characteristics of prayer. And if need be, you've begun to incorporate them into your own daily times of prayer. I did want to go back and just ever so briefly address this subject of urgency. There are times in our lives, such as we see here with the psalmist, that we are in urgent and desperate need of help. Thankfully, by the grace of God and the mercy of God, For most of us, those times are few and far between. So does that alleviate us from the responsibility of still praying with some urgency? I don't believe that it does, and here's why. What if you're praying for someone who is not a believer? You have absolutely no idea how long they're going to live, do you? So why wouldn't your prayers for them be tinged or given with a great sense of urgency. See, even though we may not, by the the grace of God, we may not need help urgently, but certainly there are those in our lives who do need urgent help. So we should pray for them with a sense of urgency. 
So last week we examined how he prayed, and now we're going to jump in and look at what he prayed for. Look at verse 146, what he prayed for. I call to you, save me, that I may observe your testimonies. I want you to notice that he continues to call out to the Lord with a sense of urgency. He says, I call to you, I cry out to you, I raise my voice, I'm shouting to you, Lord. That's what it means when he says that he cries out to God. He's, it's as if he's wanting to get God's attention, though we know that we have God's undivided attention. But what do we normally do when we find ourselves in desperate straits and we need some help? Do we whisper, hey, I need some help? No. We use our loudest, uh, boisterous voice that we can, and we cry out for someone to help us. And hopefully we cry out for God to help us. And we, we need to remember that in the preceding verse, the very first verse of this stanza, he cries out to God with his whole heart. And so here in this second verse, which is really a parallel reinstatement, restatement, excuse me, of the first verse, he cries out with the same level of emotion and intensity, and he specifically cries out for God to save him. And again, in doing this, he continues to demonstrate wisdom. You say, how so? How does he demonstrate wisdom here? Well, he demonstrates wisdom by turning to the only one who can save him. In other words, God wasn't a, a multiple choice answer on the test, and he had three or four others to choose from. No, God was the only one who could offer him and provide the help that he needed, and so he demonstrates wisdom by turning to God first. And I'm afraid there are so many times as Christians, we don't do that. For whatever reason, we will turn to others, and then when we get around to it, when everybody else seems to fail and not have any answers for us, then we will turn to God. But we need to turn to God first. You say, well, from what does he need to be saved? Well, he's seeking to be saved from these people who are drawing near him with the evil purpose. These people are out to persecute him. So he cries out to the Lord for protection, for rescue. Now we read, we read verses like this in the psalm and we say, oh, well, that's all well and good. But I wonder sometimes, do, does the reality of, of what is going on here actually hit home for us? So this morning, what I would like to do, I may never do this again, uh, I've been reading the autobiography of a man by the name of John Patton. Perhaps some of you are familiar with John Patton. Uh, John Piper has done one of his little character sketches on John Patton. Uh, and the most famous thing you probably know about John Patton is when he decided to go to the mission field, he was told, uh, you'll be eaten by cannibals. Well, John Patton was a Scottish missionary in the 1800s. And he went to the New Hebrides Islands in the Pacific Ocean. And they were populated by cannibals. And he, it, 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 to read the book is utterly fascinating and frankly, very humbling. When you see what he went through, it, it humbles me. And the book literally is filled with one encounter after another where 
these natives sought to kill him. And I read one account this week, and I thought, you know, this this fits it perfectly with what the psalmist is saying here. Save me. Save me from those who would persecute me. Well, John Patton, it was beyond persecution. They wanted to kill him. And if they killed him, they would eat him. So he has a chapter in the book, it's called The Last Awful Night. And he describes after a long day, and he's just worn out, he goes to sleep, and he's in what is called a mission house, and he's in there with another missionary family, Mr. and Mrs. Matheson. He goes to sleep, and he says about 10 o'clock in the evening, his faithful dog who had protected him on more than one occasion, in his own words, says he sprang upon me and began pulling at my clothes, and he woke him up. And he said that he could see that the dog had his eye on something going on outside. And so he got up, and he woke up the other couple. And they saw all the natives running past the mission house with lighted torches. Now, you have to keep in mind, they weren't living in brick structures. And so these natives run past the mission house, and they set the church on fire. Now, the church is connected to the mission house by a reed fence, all very combustible. And so... What would you do in that situation? Well, let me read you the first-hand account of what John Patton did. He said, taking my harmless revolver in the left hand, it was harmless because it didn't work. He said, taking my harmless revolver in the left hand and a little American tomahawk in the right, I pleaded with Mr. Matheson to let me out and instantly to again lock the door on himself and his wife. He very reluctantly did so, holding me back and saying, Stop here and let us die together. You will never return. I said, Be quick. Leave that to God. In a few minutes, our house will be in flames and nothing can save us. He did let me out and lock the door again quickly from the inside, while his wife and he prayed and watched for me from within. I ran to the burning reed fence, cut it from top to bottom, and tore it up and threw it back into the flames so that the fire could not by it be carried to our dwelling house. I saw on the ground shadows as if something were falling around me and started back. Seven or eight savages had surrounded me and raised their great clubs in the air. I heard a shout, kill him, kill him. One savage tried to seize hold of me, but leaping from his clutch, I drew the revolver from my pocket and leveled it as for use. My heart going up in prayer to my God, I said, dare to strike me. This man was so bold. That's part of what humbles me. He's so bold. Listen to what he says. There's eight people here ready to kill him. He says, dare to strike me, and my Jehovah God will punish you. 
He protects us and will punish you for burning his church, for hatred to his worship and people, and for all your bad conduct. I, I had to I had to chuckle at that. It's like he scolded a little kid, you naughty boys. We love you all. Now notice this. They're, they're, they're intent on killing him. And he says, we love you all, and for doing you good, only you want to kill us. But our God is here now to protect us and to punish you. Punish you. They yelled and raged and urged each other to strike the first blow. But the invisible one restrained them. I stood invulnerable beneath his invisible shield and succeeded in rolling back the tide of flame from our dwelling house. Now, if that wasn't miraculous enough, listen to what happens next. He said, at this dread moment occurred an incident which my readers may explain as they like, but which I trace directly to the interposition of my God, or intervention of God, if you want to put it that way. A rushing and roaring sound came from the south like the noise of a mighty engine or a muttering thunder. Every head was instinctively turned in that direction, and they knew from previous hard experience that it was one of their awful tornadoes of wind and rain. Now mark, the winds bore the flames away from our dwelling house. Had it come in the opposite direction, no power on earth could have saved us from being all consumed. It made the work of destroying the church only that of a few minutes, but it brought with it a heavy and murky cloud, which poured out a perfect torrent of tropical rain. Now mark again, the flames of the burning church were thereby cut off from extending to and seizing upon the reeds and the bush, and besides, it had become almost impossible now to set fire to our dwelling house. The mighty roaring of the wind, the black cloud pouring down unceasing torrents, and the whole surrounds all these savages in the silence. Some began to withdraw from the scene, all lowered their weapons of war, and several, terror-struck, exclaimed, This is Jehovah's reign. Now they said R-A-I-N, but I say R-E-I-G-N. This is Jehovah's reign. Their Jehovah God is fighting for them and helping them. Let us get away. The panic seized upon them. They threw away the remaining torches in a few moments. They had all disappeared into the bush, and I was left alone praising God for his marvelous works. And then he quotes the psalm, O taste and see that, the, the, that God is good, blessed is the man that trusts in him. Returning to the door of the mission house, I cried, Open and let me in. I am now alone. I kept thinking of Peter knocking at the door. Mr. Madison let me in and exclaimed, If ever in time of need God sent help and protection to his servants in answer to prayer, he has done so tonight. Blessed be his holy name. And then he closes the chapter by saying, In fear and joy we united our praises. Truly our Jesus has all power not less than the elements of nature than in the savage hearts of the natives. Precious Jesus, often since have I wept over his love and mercy and that deliverance and prayed that every moment of my remaining life may be consecrated to the service of my precious friend and Savior. See, so many times we read in Scripture, save me, But we don't connect the dots, do we? But then we read the life of a man like John Patton and we say, hey, God does save his people. 
God does protect his people. God does work on behalf of his people. And you think John Patton was familiar with the cry of the psalmist here in Psalm 119, save me. Don't you think that John Patton recalled to mind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the midst of the fiery flames? Certainly he remembered the salvation of God on behalf of his people. God hears and God responds to the prayers of his people. And I want you to notice again, I pointed this out last week, that he was specific in his request. What did he ask God to do specifically? Save me. Save me. Now, just as he did in verse 145, he says, I call to you, save me, that I may observe your commandments. Now, we learned last week that what he's actually asking for is for God to give him the ability to obey even in the worst of his trials. But I think there's also a connection here that needs to be made between prayer and obedience. The psalmist understood that the key to answered prayer is obedience. He understands that if he wants to be heard by God, if he wants God to hear him and respond to him, he must be willing to listen to God. How many times have we prayed with selfish motives? We want God to do what we want him to do, but we're not really interested or concerned with listening to him or obeying him. Sadly, at times, we are guilty of what James describes. James says, you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. In other words, we pray with selfish motives. We want God to hear us, but we're not all that interested in listening to what God has to say. And so what happens? Our prayer lives are ineffective. They never change anything. But the psalmist, he's not praying in a selfish manner. He knows that God hears him, and he also knows that God knows his heart. Therefore, he knows that God knows that he has a desire to obey his word. So we need to understand that there's a direct connection between prayer and obedience. If you have no intention of obeying God, don't waste your breath. Don't waste the mental energy to pray. Because there is, I'll say it for the third time, a direct connection between answered prayer and our obedience. Now, we look at this and we say, well, you know what? I, I'm not feeling any pressure at the moment from physical enemies. And perhaps I can't ever say that I've been threatened by anyone because I'm a Christian. I, I do think I was in, in the presence of a, a demon one time with a, a one particular lady, and I couldn't wait to buy moose out of that place. Um, but I've never really felt threatened from some physical enemy, and perhaps you have. But if we haven't, we, we may look at this and say, oh, well, I can just uh, not worry about this portion of the psalm because I really I don't have any physical enemies that I need to be worried about. Well, listen. We need to understand that every day that we have an enemy that we need to be saved from, and this enemy is very close at hand, 
In fact, this enemy is closer than our own shadow. Say, well, who do you mean? Who is this enemy? This enemy is our own fallen, unredeemed flesh. And sadly, we don't recognize that our unredeemed bodies are actually our enemies. Doesn't the Bible say that the, fl the flesh lusteth against the spirit? It's doing war against the spirit, trying to keep us from living according to the spirit. It's, it's an enemy that we have to deal with. And sadly, if, if we don't truly recognize what an enemy that we have as a constant companion, uh, the corollary to that is we severely underestimate the power of this enemy. So here again, we're back where we are living a defeated Christian life rather than living the life that we could be living in the power of the Spirit. Therefore, this portion of the psalm should be appropriated and applied to our own lives. Matthew Henry put it nicely. He said, save me from my sins, my corruptions, my temptations, the hindrances that lie in my way, that I may keep your testimonies, that I can keep your word so I can obey your word, so I can live in obedience to you. Save me from myself. Like the, the old evangelist D.L. Moody said, his biggest problem was his self. So the psalmist prays to save me. And we can, we can look at that and say, well, I don't have any physical enemies at the moment, but I, I do have one that's with me all the time. And he's a dirty, low-down rascal. And I'm not going to underestimate him anymore. Save me from my own fallen, unredeemed flesh. So we know how he prayed, what he prayed, and now we see when he prayed. Look at verses 147 and 148. I rise before dawn and cry for help. I hope in your words. My eyes are awake before the watches of the night that I may meditate on your promise. Now the psalmist was, found himself in such dire straits and such desperate need that he is losing sleep. The question is, does he lose this sleep willingly or is his loss of sleep caused by his concern and his worry over his enemies? To be honest with you, I think it's a little of both. I do think that he is intentional in losing sleep, but there's also a facet of this, an aspect of this, in which he's losing sleep because of his enemies. Notice that he says in verse 148, uh, 147, I rise before dawn. And then in verse 148, he says, my eyes are awake before the watches of the night. So he's willingly given, giving up sleep in order to pray. And he gets up early to pray and he stays up late to pray. So why is he doing this? Because his soul was in such turmoil. His soul was in such a tortured state that he can hardly think of anything else. But I want you to notice here, and this is probably where we differ from the, the psalmist in his actions. Notice what he does. He does, uh, we could say the right thing, but I'm going to take it one step further and say he does the best thing in that he takes his trouble to the Lord. That's why he gets up early to pray. 
That's why he stays up late to pray, because he's taking his trouble to the Lord. You know what he's not doing? He is not playing the what-if game. We are all champions at the what-if game. Seems like it comes so naturally to us. The what-if game is where you think of all the negative things that could happen, but most likely will never happen. And you drive yourself crazy with that way of thinking. But he doesn't do that. It says he goes straight to the Lord. He fills his mind, not with what ifs, but rather he fills his mind with the certainty of God's word. Now in verse 147, he says, I hope in your words. And then in verse 148, I meditate on your promise. Now the hope that he expresses in verse 147 means, we all, we all are probably familiar with this, is a confident expectation, not only that God is going to hear him, but that God is going to respond to his prayer. So he confidently expects God to help him, to save him. Then in verse 148, he says that he meditates on God's promises. In other words, what are God's promises? They are God's commitments to his people. And so he, with intention, thinks about God's promises. Now notice here again, instead of letting his mind engage in negative, unfocused, uncontrolled, and undisciplined thinking, he, with deliberate intent, focuses his mind on the truth of God's word, on the promises that God made to his children. Instead of filling his mind with uncertainty, with half-truths and negative thoughts, he fills his mind with the certainty of God's word. And he is intentional about this. You say, well, where do you see that? Meditation always requires intention. We just don't automatically find ourselves meditating, do we? Now, my biggest problem is I want to meditate and my mind just kind of floats away. I'm thinking about lunch or will the Bengals win or will the Reds ever see a winning season again? Will the Roses survive in Richmond? Amen. But meditation requires intention. James Montgomery Boyce helps us understand what it means to meditate on the Bible. He writes this, Biblical meditation is more than merely reading the Bible and perhaps praying afterwards. It's even more, it's more even than memorizing certain portions of it. It is internalizing the Bible's teaching to such an extent that the truths discovered in the Bible become part of how we think. So that we think differently and then also function differently as a result. See, we all know that we act according to our thoughts. So the goal of biblical meditation is to change the way that we think so we act differently. So as we meditate on the scriptures, we should always be asking ourselves, how could this portion of scripture apply to my life? How can it impact my life right here 
right now? How can it change my daily behavior? Now, I don't know about you, but as a Christian, uh, I, I want to change now. I don't, I don't want to push it off into the future. I got, I got a lot of things that need to be changed, and I'm running out of daylight, amen? So I want to, to get, make sure that these things change now. So I meditate on the scriptures and I say, how can this impact a specific area of my life? And, and, and the, the, the clue is, well, what is that scripture addressing? For instance, perhaps it's addressing the tongue. So you should ask yourself, well, how can this scripture change the way that I talk? Do I need to change the way that I talk? I think all of us would say yes to a certain degree. So I take that scripture and I apply it to a very specific area of my life. And then we move on to other areas as led by the Holy Spirit. See, it's not enough to simply read biblical truth. It's not enough to know biblical truth. You must apply biblical truth so that you begin to think differently, because once you begin to think differently, you will begin to function differently, as Boyce says. And you learn to apply the scriptures through meditation. Listen, if you need to slow down in your Bible reading so that you can meditate, do it. Do it. It's wonderful to read through your Bible once a year or twice a year or whatever you set a goal for yourself. But listen, if, it's, if you're not seeing the kind of change in your life that you desire and that you know that God wants you to make because what we, we have been saved in order to be conformed to the image of Christ and if we see ourselves not making much progress in that, listen, back down, back down on the Bible reading and begin to meditate on the little that you are reading and then begin to apply that. As far as I know, you're not going to get a gold star for how many times you read through the Bible. But you are going to be judged on your likeness to Christ and your good works. So we see how he prayed, what he prayed, when he prayed, and now we see what he pleads pleads. Look at verse 149. Now, there's an important word in, ver in verse 149. It's used twice. It's the word according, okay? So I emphasize it as I read it. Hear my voice according to your steadfast love, O Lord, according to your justice, give me life. And what is he doing here? He's pleading with God He's appealing to two very specific facets of God's nature. He's highlighting two very specific characteristics of God. First, he pleads the steadfast love of God. This simply means that he appeals to God's covenant faithfulness. He knows that God's love never fails. Indeed, it cannot fail. He knows that God is love, and he knows that God is loyal to his people. Other translations, perhaps one that you have, use the word loving kindness instead of steadfast love. And loving kindness is a good word, and Spurgeon's translation used that. And he said this, loving kindness is one of the sweetest words in our language. Kindness has much in it that is precious, but loving kindness is doubly dear. It is the cream of kindness. 
And so this is what the psalmist pleads with God. You are a God of loving kindness. You are a God of steadfast love. So having pleaded the steadfast love of God, what does he do? He pleads the justice of God. Now, what do we mean when we say that God is just? Well, that could be a whole series of messages in itself, but in, in simplest forms, it means this, that God will always do the right thing. God will always do the right thing. So, do you see what he's doing here? As he pleads the steadfast love of God, as he pleads the justice of God, I believe he's actually calming himself and comforting himself with these truths about God. Now, please don't discount what I just said. We know that his enemies are closing in on him. He tells us that in the very next verse. But he's not fixated on them, is he? If he let himself become fixated on them, he would have become increasingly nervous, agitated, and filled with anxiety. We know this to be true, correct? Instead, he cries out to God, and in doing so, as he pleads these characteristics of God, these attributes of God, as he he pleads these things, he brings calm and comfort to himself. And he does this by acknowledging the steadfast love that God had for him. He calms himself by reminding himself that God is a God of love and that God is a God of justice. Spurgeon said that after the silent meditations of the psalmist, he audibly cries out to his God that he knows, loves him, cares for him, and protects him. Now, here's what I believe was happening. Remember I said a few weeks ago that Martin Lloyd-Jones was an advocate of every Christian talking to themselves instead of listening to themselves? Martin Lloyd-Jones advocated for believers to talk to themselves and remind themselves of the goodness of God and the grace of God in our lives. Martin Lloyd-Jones advocated for all believers to remind themselves of who they are in Christ, to remind themselves of what God the Father has done for them through his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. I wholeheartedly believe that's exactly what the psalmist is doing here. He's talking to himself. He's reminding himself of the nature and the character of God. He reminds himself that he belongs to God. He reminds himself that he's under God's care. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that he's uh, strengthening himself. I am saying he's drawing strength from these truths about God. This is not a do-it-yourself job. But what he does is he begins to apply spiritual truth to his current dire situation. And thereby, 
He draws on the calm and the comfort that is in his God. I hope you give that serious consideration. Particularly if you struggle with anxiety or high levels of stress. Think about that. I want to be careful when I say this, but do you realize that at the time this was written, this was all the psalmist had? But it was all that he needed. We know how he prayed. We know what he prayed for. We know when he prayed, what he pleased. And then finally, what he was facing. What he was facing. Look at verse 150. They draw near, near who persecute me with evil purpose. They are far from your law. So in verse 50, 150, he spells out exactly what he's facing. He reveals the source of his trouble. He was facing imminent persecution from those he describes as drawing near in order to carry out their evil purposes. Now, that phrase draw near is really a rather tame way of describing the reality of a situation. What he describes are people rushing towards him with hostile purpose. That's the picture here. Think of what we just heard from the life of John Patton. He's being rushed upon by seven or eight guys with clubs looking to take him out. And these people have malice in their hearts. They care nothing for God. They care nothing for God's law. And they care nothing for God's people. This is what he was facing. They draw near who persecute me. They are far from your law. They care nothing for your law. Then in verse 151, he describes his protection. But you are near, O Lord, and all your commandments are true. Again, he gives himself a good talking to, and he reminds himself that even as his enemies draw near, that God was already with him. This is a precious reality that all of God's children, we would do well to remember. God is near his children to protect, to guide, to encourage, and to provide his strength whenever we need it. I mean, I could spend the next hour giving you verse after verse after verse. Let me just give you a few of them. Let's start with Psalm 20, the 23rd Psalm. And part of the 23rd Psalm said, Even though I walk through the valley of shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Now what scares us more than death? Nothing. But the psalmist says, Even though, worst case scenario, the worst thing that we face, the thing that we dread, even though I walk through the valley of shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? For you are with me. I think of the promise Jesus made in Matthew 28, 20. And behold, I am with you, what's he say? Always to the end of the age. I read this verse on Friday morning during my prayer time. I think it's my new life's verse. Even to your old age, amen. I am he, and to your gray hairs. It's kind of personal, but 
Hey, I'll take it. And to gray hairs I will carry you. I have made, and I will bear, and I will carry, and I will save. You can't make, bear, carry, and save unless you're what? You're near. Unless you're near. Psalm 145, 18, the Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. Psalm 27, 1, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? So you see what he's doing here? He not only reminds himself of God's presence, he also reminds himself of God's promises, of God's commandments that he's given to his people. So I hope it's becoming obvious that what the psalmist is doing here, all throughout the psalm, is he's piling up one truth upon another about God, about his relationship to God. He's building his own fortress based upon God's word. This is what he relies upon for protection. This is his strength. This is his comfort. Now, verse 152, at first glance, seems a little out of place. Look at verse 152. Long have I known from your testimonies that you have founded them forever. And I'm thinking, what's that? What's that got to do with everything else? Here's what he's saying. Long have I known. This has been the pattern of my life. I have focused on your word. Long have I known from your testimonies. In other words, he said, I have been applying them. I've been relying upon them. I've been claiming these promises. Long have I known from your testimonies that you have founded them forever. Pay attention to that word founded. The psalmist knows that God's word was a rock solid foundation on which he could build his life. A solid foundation that has stood the test of time and will continue to stand the test of time. He understood that God's word was founded on a rock-solid, unmovable, unchangeable, and absolutely reliable foundation. So the question for you and I is, what are we building our lives on? Are you building your life on the rock-solid, unchangeable, unmovable, unshakable foundation of God's word? Or are you building your life on the shifting sands of the thinking of our culture, which ultimately will fail you? I can't help but think of the hymn, How Firm a Foundation. How firm a foundation, you saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith where? In his excellent word. What more can he say to you? He has said, well, that, you know, if you want to memorize, if you want to meditate on a verse from him, that's it right there. To you who for refuge to Jesus have fled. Have you fled to Jesus for refuge? I was up this morning going over my sermon, and uh, I was completely unaware that while I was sleeping, it was raining and windy and sounded like I was blowing the house down. Well, I wasn't aware of that when I was asleep, but when I got up. So I went downstairs, and I was going over some things, and 
man, the wind was just howling. And that rain was pelting the house. But you know what? It didn't bother me in the least. You say, why not? Because my house was my refuge. I wasn't worried about the wind. I wasn't worried about the rain. My house was my refuge. You see, when Christ is your refuge, guess what? You don't have to worry about the howling winds and the pelting rain. Just as I was in my house, the believer is in Christ. Protected from all of that. Have you come to Christ? Are you in Christ? Give serious consideration to that. The uncertainty of life. Alex never dreamed that he'd get a phone call this morning that his father couldn't remember people and was confused. It could have been worse. It's the uncertainty of life. You say, well, I think I'm saved. Thinking you're saved is not the same as you are saved. Have you fled to Christ? Is he your refuge? Let's pray. Father, as I've expressed before, I've come to love Psalm 119.